listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Greetings, friends. In the name of the one who is risen, welcome back to Resurrection Life. So, folks, what do you say we talk for a few weeks about heaven? That's the theme of this final series of sermons that I want to share with you this summer. Uh, Heaven's surely a happy topic for Christians everywhere, and I do hope this will be an encouraging set of meditations for us. Uh, The sermons on heaven that I'm republishing here over the next four weeks uh, were first preached at Resurrection about ten years ago, and I have to confess, I thoroughly enjoyed preaching on the subject back then. Uh, Let me say that there has been indeed a method to my madness in collecting the three series of sermons that I've been airing over the course of the summer. Uh, There's a common denominator among them. Uh, I'll put it in terms uh, that the prophets used of old. Uh, That common denominator is the grand and glorious plan of God for his salvation to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. You remember in the first series of the summer, we considered the commissioning that Christ gave to his people to extend his rightful reign as king uh, to all the nations of the earth. In that second series, we then grappled uh, with some of the implications of having this kingdom-seeking orientation in all the spheres of our lives. And now, in this third series, I want to encourage us with a vision of what the fruition of our labors and the final coming of Christ will look like. We're going to go to heaven in our minds, as it were, by faith in God's promises in Scripture. But friends, uh, this topic of heaven, for all of its pleasantness and popularity, uh, it is also fraught with serious and, at points, even absurd misunderstandings among Christians. For all the relevance and importance of the subject, there is a lot of confusion among us. Particularly, there is their confusion about the relationship of what we call heaven and this earth, which is all we've ever known as home. So in this series, I'm going to be seeking to build a biblical theology of heaven, one that uh, properly understands the nature of heaven and its relationship to earth and why we really do have so much to look forward to as the earth dwellers that we are. So I've called this first message in the series, Strange Notions of Heaven, because this is where I seek to identify not just some of the biggest misconceptions about heaven among us as Christians, but also, as best I can, the sources of those misunderstandings. I'll be talking about pagan, Gnostic, Platonic, and scholastic visions of heaven, and I'll be contrasting them with the biblical teaching at each point. Now, uh, don't worry, Uh, you don't need a philosophy degree to follow my points here, but I'll warn you, you may or may not see in yourselves some of the same mistaken assumptions about heaven that I'll be trying to identify. Here's the good news. A biblical vision of heaven is the most exciting one you can have. You may realize, like I did some years ago, all these misunderstandings about heaven are actually the primary reason I hadn't been looking forward to it more. And God certainly does. Tell us about heaven in order to give us something to cheer us on our way through this life of service to him. So friends, enjoy uh, these heavenly meditations.
invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the first of many or several passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I wish to read from verse 6 to verse 10. Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared For those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Amen. For a few Sunday evenings here at the beginning of the year, we're going to consider the glories of heaven. I trust that I'll not receive any objections to that. What a blessing it would be to be reminded of. That hope we have, the joys that await us. Uh, this sermon at sermon series, if you will, uh, comes as an interruption to the study in Hebrews. But actually, you should think of it as a, as a supplement to our studies in the book of Hebrews. We, end of last year, completed the famous chapter 11. And within that chapter, among many other things, we saw Abraham's faith. He's commended to us, among other, for among other reasons, for putting his hope in heaven. Hebrews 11, verse 16 says of Abraham and Sarah, But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, the theme of heaven deserved more than I gave it when we looked at that passage. And indeed, it's going to be a theme that reappears in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, we'll read of this. We, rather, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We'll continue to consider the theme of heaven in Hebrews. And interestingly, our series in the morning will also find our thoughts taken to this subject as well. The book of 1 Thessalonians will be coming soon enough to these words. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So you might consider this a supplemental mini-series to both our Hebrews and our Thessalonian studies. We want to understand the nature of heaven. But as I begin this evening, I want to acknowledge that there's a tremendous amount of confusion about heaven, even among Christians. Perhaps you've encountered this among, as we speak, laymen. I assure you it also exists among those who are professional students of the Bible. Listen to this word 
from a book on heaven entitled, Where on Earth is Heaven? Listen for the confusion. The author writes, Only our redeemed spirits can live in a spiritual realm like heaven. Therefore, the life we know now as spiritual reality will continue in heaven. But we shall not need or desire the things associated with our present physical bodies, simply because we shall not possess physical bodies in heaven. Now, in that book, reportedly on heaven, you could pick it up at a Christian bookstore, I presume. You're hearing what we're going to see tonight is nothing less than Gnosticism. Listen to this quote from another book entitled, Heaven Opened. When the material world perishes, we shall find ourselves in the spiritual world. When the dream of life ends, we shall awake in the world of reality. When our connection with this world comes to a close, we shall find ourselves in our eternal spiritual home. Are you listening for the confusion? We'll call this view tonight Platonism. These are strange, but unfortunately familiar notions of heaven within the church. Do me a favor, don't go into a Christian bookstore and just pick up a book on heaven. It probably will not be a good one. There are some good ones. They're probably not in your local Christian bookstore. I'd love to be proven wrong. Uh, I have touched on some of these confusions in years past, but I've also since then grown to my understanding of the source of some of this confusion. And tonight, getting started on our study of heaven, I want to take you through four strange notions of heaven and contrast them with biblical truths of heaven. And as I do that, I'll be seeking to identify the source of those strange notions of heaven. We'll start with paganism. And from paganism, we receive the notion that heaven is a place of endless Rest and recreation. R and R. You know that Christians are not alone in uh, believing in an afterlife and even for certain people, a very pleasant afterlife. The ancient Romans, I read, believed of a time when they would picnic in the fields while their horses grazed nearby, disappearing in their words about heaven. Native Americans we're told, believe in a time coming when, apart from all the other stresses, they'll be able to devote themselves to hunting in the happy hunting grounds. Muslims uh, think of a time when they will have, if they're faithful, especially if they give up their life for Allah, they'll have wine, women, and song endlessly in a place to come. You can listen to such notions of heaven and get the sense that heaven will be Nothing more, nothing less than an, an endless vacation. What you do that week at the beach, that's what heaven is going to be like. Not much more than resting, relaxing, and indulging yourself in certain pleasures. Now, Christians, I trust, don't imbibe entirely this view of heaven, but there is an influence of this pagan notion of heaven upon the church. Many Christians have gotten the notion that heaven will be a place where we'll be largely inactive. It's going to be our rest, after all, is it not? 
And so the whole purpose that God has for us is to do very, very little. Radical inactivity. And though that can have its appeal at moments for most of us, when you try to think about endlessly doing nothing, it can sort of dampen the appeal of heaven. You remember the cartoon strip, The Far Side, and Gary Larson take his take on this particular notion of heaven. The man is sitting there on a cloud. He's got a heart, but he looks exceedingly bored. And under the picture is the caption, Wish I'd brought a magazine. I'm afraid that there are Christians who, when they compare this life and all that is happening in this life with what they think is supposedly reserved for them in the life to come in heaven, a place where there's not very much to do, have a hard time thirsting for heaven. Well, the biblical account, the biblical record of heaven, as we'll see more of in the weeks to come, is that it will be a very busy place. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. We had occasion to look at this not too long ago, emphasizing another part of these words of our Lord. Matthew 25 brings us to our Lord's parable of the talents. We learn a great deal about his return. And what he will be concerned with as he returns to see how we have used his gifts. But I'm going to emphasize in particular one part of the words of the master as he returns. This is Jesus depicting himself at his return. Verse 21, we read, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, brothers and sisters, what is being spoken of here is that the reward that we look forward to in the life to come in heaven is the reward of being given even more responsibility, even more opportunity to serve the Lord. What you're doing right now is, is just the, the, the training ground. It's, the, it's the, the testing ground for what you will be doing in the life to come. Our Lord has tasks for you. They will be, I assure you, rewarding, fulfilling tasks. They will surpass any of the satisfaction you've had in this life doing the many things that you're called to do. There will not be drudgery in the life to come by any means. But you will be a very busy person in the new earth. Just as in the original paradise, man was given a job to do so. In the final paradise, there will be great and glorious tasks. You will be entrusted with those tasks. We said not too long ago, you're never more godlike than when you are at work. And indeed, that will be our privilege in the heaven to come. What will we be doing? Well, we'll be taking dominion over a new heaven. A new earth, harnessing the resources of that new earth, beautifying what God has made, creating new things. And according to the scriptures, we'll be reigning as God originally appointed King Adam to reign in the earth. And hence, our Lord's words to his faithful servants. You've been faithful a little. I will put you over much. Heaven is not a do nothing place. 
It's not just rest and relaxation. It is a bustling place of fulfilling endeavors on behalf of the Lord. That's one strange notion, and it's contrast to the Scripture. Second comes to us from Gnosticism, and that is the notion that heaven is an ethereal home for our spirits. There are many experts on heaven these days. Maria Shriver, wife of the late governor, or the recent, I should put it, recent governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, has also written on heaven, and she commits some of the crimes of this strange notion. She writes for children in the book, What's Heaven? And she writes this, It is a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night, you can sit next to the stars. Maria Shriver's pulled that out of her mind. She has just pulled that notion out of the air. And I doubt she would claim anything other than that. I've called this in the past the fuzzy, floaty view of heaven. It's the notion that comes to people's mind that in heaven we, well, not a, it's not a literally sitting on a cloud. We won't be actually in some tangible place. We won't be in a place that has a floor. We won't be in a place where there's uh, hard things because heaven is an immaterial place. So goes this notion of heaven. Earth, of course, is a material place. Heaven is an immaterial place. Earth is for bodies. Heaven is for souls. Now, that dualism is uh, ancient Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the first main threat to the church, the first main heresy. The New Testament writers are already countering it in some of their letters Gnosticism believes that all that's wrong with the world can be traced to its physicality. All that's right with the world is that which is immaterial, the spirit, the soul. The body is your problem. The soul, if it could be released from the body, why then it would be able to really live. Many Christians, if they're honest, when they think of heaven, the lens gets fuzzy. Heaven is that, not sure exactly what, but it's the, it's the realm for spirits. We more float there than sit or stand or walk. There's something less than a tangible physical place. Now, uh, next week in particular, we're going to see that there's one particular distinction the Bible makes in this area of a theology of heaven that is perhaps partly uh, at the root of this confusion. In the Bible... The word heaven refers, in fact, to two places. There is a place where our souls go when we die that's called heaven in the Bible. And there's also a place where the world, having been recreated, becomes home to our resurrected bodies. Now, that's terribly confusing for many Christians. One place is the realm for spirits, but that's only a temporary place. The other place is the place for our resurrected body, souls, come back together to be with the incarnate Son of God forever and ever. Gnostic views of heaven fail to see this distinction and consider heaven only in terms of a place where spirits will dwell, an immaterial realm. Now, that too can be a damper. 
on one's desires for heaven, because it's not natural for us to want to be in a place of bodiless existence. That's not who we are. That's not anything that we know. And to long for that kind of place is, as our final resting place, an unnatural thing. I want you to turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3 for one of the passages that speak of heaven. And in Second Peter, we have the antidote to Gnosticism. The Apostle is writing an exhortation to his readers about how they're to live. And he casts their vision to the future and to the reality of heaven. Second Peter chapter 3, I'll begin reading at verse 11. He writes, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You and I may not be able to fully understand what it will mean for the heavens to be dissolved by fire and the heavenly bodies to melt. There will be at the very least, a tremendous alteration of them. In another place, Peter compares the time of the end with the flood and the effects that the water surrounding the globe had upon the earth. The end will bring about that kind of transformation of the earth. And here he speaks of it in terms of fire and the dissolution of the created order. But what is often overlooked in this vision of the end is that the earth and the heaven will be remade. They will be restored. God will refashion from that dissolved earth a new earth and a new heaven. Verse 13. In other words, brothers and sisters, what's going to happen to our very physical world, our very physical universe, is going to parallel what's going to happen to our bodies if Jesus tarries. Your body will be dissolved in the earth by death. But God has committed himself to raising that same body from the ground, restoring you in your flesh and blood for all the rest of eternity. And he's committed to do the same thing for this physical earth that we dwell on. He is committed to us. But he is committed to all that he's made to its restoration. And so Gnosticism brings a strange notion of heaven in light of the biblical record. Third strange notion comes from an even older source, and that is from Platonism. That's the notion that heaven is the real world of which this world is just a reflection Gnosticism took its cues from Plato in this regard, the ancient Greek philosopher. Plato taught, in far more sophisticated terms than I'm going to represent, that the world we live in is, is like a shadow of another world that is more real. We live, if you will, in the mirror. 
The mirror is just the reflection of the, the real universe. And what death will allow us to do in the platonic mind is to transition from what is just the shadow to that which is the reality, that which is just the mirror to that which has all along been the reality that it reflected. Remember, a few weeks ago I picked on C.S. Lewis for having a platonic view of heaven. Remember how this works in the Chronicles of Narnia. For all the adventures of Narnia, Edmund and Lucy in that final novel are told they haven't ever actually been in the real Narnia. The Narnia they've been in thus far had a beginning and it will have an end. It's a temporary Narnia. It was just a reflection of the real Narnia. Narnia is not so relevant to you, but I'll say it this way. The Charlotte, North Carolina that you see isn't the real Charlotte, North Carolina. There's another North Carolina to which you will go when you die. That's the platonic view of heaven. Lord Diggory, I'll quote him again in the last battle, says to them, it was only a shadow or copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as our world, England at all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. Lewis acknowledges his debt to Plato. And so, for him, heaven is the universe next door. That's the more real universe. As beautiful as Virginia is, the real Virginia is even more beautiful. That Virginia, the one you know, will pass away. The real Virginia has always been and always will be. Now, that's a fundamentally mistaken view of God's plan for this good old earth. And such as there's only one North Carolina. It's not what it once was when God first made it. But neither is it what it's going to be when God remakes it. Turn to Romans chapter 8 to debunk this notion. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> the apostle is this glorious passage in his arguably greatest letter, looking ahead to the consummation of our redemption. And he writes in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Rather, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this passage, the apostle depicts creation as having expectation. He's doing the same thing the psalmist does when he attributes to creation the capacity to praise God. 
but he's personifying the created world. And he says the created world is also like you are yearning for the consummation of God's saving purposes. Now, what's creation got gotten itself so excited about the coming redemption? According to a platonic notion of heaven, the creation is going to be discarded. This whole unreal image is going to be discarded and we're going to go to the real creation or rather the thing that's never been created. Brothers and sisters, in Paul's thought, the fall of man brought about a degrading of creation, but the redemption of man will include the restoration of this created order so that what you know, those most beloved parts of this world to you, those parts of this world will in fact be restored as God comes to make all things right. I'll just add about Lewis. You and I can actually benefit a great deal from Lewis's depictions of heaven as long as you remember the world he's imagining as he depicts heaven, is not one that exists right now as a parallel world, the real North Carolina. But if you read him recognizing that the world is, that he's imagining is the world we live in now once it's been restored at the coming of the Lord Jesus, then if you make that rather substantial adjustment, you'll great, gain great benefit from Lewis's mind. Well, that is Platonism, and I have one last source of a strange notion of heaven. That comes actually from within the church, particularly in the medieval period, and that comes from scholasticism. From scholasticism, we have the notion that heaven will entail for us in our experience nothing more than the contemplation of God. Scholasticism is a word we use to class a certain number of theologians in the medieval period. You think that Presbyterian theologians can sometimes get obtuse. Well, scholasticism was a season in the church's history when the greatest minds devoted themselves uh, to questions that were highly speculative in nature. They often were dealing very seriously with the scriptures, but they often went beyond the scriptures, and they often took up matters of dubious importance or significance. You've, you've heard scholasticism uh, caricatured as the question, how many angels can dance on the head of a needle? That's the caricature of scholasticism. Men like Peter Lombard and Thomas Aquinas were leading scholastics. Thomas Aquinas did some thinking about 1 Corinthians 13:12. And he believed that it summed up our experience of heaven. There the apostle writes, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is what Thomas Aquinas taught. Much of it very profoundly true. He taught that the reward of heaven was the ability of the redeemed to see God directly apart from faith. That is what would bring about the happiness 
of heaven. The satisfaction of all our desires, being able to see God and by seeing Aquinas thought of in terms of knowing. Thomas, uh, Thomas Aquinas went so far as to say we will know him in his essence. And heaven will consist in our being given a sight of God, a knowledge of God. And since there's no other activity that could so satisfy as the contemplation of God in true communion, Aquinas brought all of heaven and all of its experience to that point. Heaven will not consist of many activities. It will consist of this one state of Blissful contemplation of God. This is called the beatific vision that comes in glorification. Now, Aquinas was brilliant and devout. And he has very uh, profound insights here into some of the great privileges of heaven. And as you sing, uh, even our reformed hymns, you'll have some of those themes being struck. Indeed, the greatest possible blessing in heaven will be unhindered communion with God in Jesus Christ. It's debatable whether we will be able to know God in his essence. It's not debatable that we will fellowship with him forever and ever and ever through his son, the Lord Jesus. But this, perhaps, is where the very common notion of heaven as one unending Service of worship comes from. I've spoken to this before. You children gotten that idea? Have you heard heaven spoken of as worship? Rightly so. We have glimpses of the heavenly places where worship is taking place. And perhaps you've gotten a sense that heaven will be one ongoing, endless service of worship like you're involved in right now. And you've wondered at times, am I supposed to look forward to that? Is that what I'm supposed to be excited about? Remember the conversation in the adventures of Huckleberry Finn? The Christian in the story, Miss Watson, uh, is telling Huck about heaven. And according to Huck's report, she said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. Huck's response is, well, I want to speak carefully here, brothers and sisters. I'm not minimizing the glory of the worship of heaven. Indeed, you gain any blessing in worship on earth, it's because you're able to partake by a connection between heaven and earth in the worship of heaven. But there is a reason why, if that's been your notion of heaven, it has not always been the the thing most ravishing to your soul, that is not the kind of creatures we were made to be. To be constantly only engaged in contemplation of God. As I've already made reference to, God intends for us a whole world of activities done in His presence and to His glory, making use of our gifts And our abilities. Your delights will be chiefly God and His Son, the Lord Jesus. And like in this life, your delights will be all manner of things He's made and given to you to enjoy 
Some of my favorite references in the scripture to heaven, the ones that Jesus gives, in which he envisions, surely not the only thing we're going to do. I don't want to fall into another error. But it envisions a a particularly relevant token activity that, that speaks of the whole. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You, you see what he's doing in that picture? This is a picture of fellowship with food. It's a rather ordinary picture from our life. Things that we're enjoying physically, food, people we're enjoying, and of course, God and his presence. We'll be doing that and a lot of other things like that in heaven. We're going to be reminded in the next couple of weeks that your primary reference point in envisioning heaven is the earth that was originally made. And the earth that was originally made was full of delights. And the man that was originally made was given the capacity To enjoy all those delights. That's what heaven will be like when we come into it. We'll explore the intricacies of God's creation. We'll delight in the diversity of what he's made. We'll cultivate God-like capacity to order his world. Well, these things, brothers and sisters, by way of strange notions that we need to be mindful of just in the next few weeks. As we begin to sort out what the scripture says about heaven, not endless rest and recreation, not endless bodiless existence, not in a world that's actually more real than this one. Not merely the contemplation of God as much as that will be a blessing. Can I close by suggesting one further reason There may be for confusion, not just these notions that are foreign to the scriptures, but it may also be a certain amount of neglect on our part in studying this doctrine. We, this whole year of last things, we tend to have our thoughts drawn and our studies engaged in the things that are hotly debated. Eschatology is the thing we most study in the church because that's the area where we disagree. Or things that are more immediately important to us, rightly so, like soteriology. Because of this, some Christians have come to the conclusion we just can't know that much about heaven. We shouldn't really try. We'll find out when we get there. The passage that I start out this evening is sometimes used to make that point. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of a man imagined, God has prepared those who love him. Now, that passage isn't quoted in its entirety if it's used that way. Apostle goes on to say, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. We'll seek in just a few weeks together on this subject to have some sense of what Abraham was looking at. Remember, when the promises of God didn't match the way his life was unfolding, and so by faith, he, we're told, looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It's apparently 
a very important thing for our faith to know about heaven, to know what we are readying ourselves for. J.C. Ryle says, I pity the man who never thinks about heaven. We could add, or the man who thinks wrongly about heaven. Let's pray together. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice, a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.